for a long, long time growing up, I struggled with how other people viewed me. Specifically, I was worried that I wasn't big, strong, or manly enough. I was in choir and theater all throughout school, never really understood the appeal of most popular sports, and was physically smaller than most of my classmates. I feared that all of these things combined made me unattractive and would limit my chances of finding a partner. Now, I know I'm not alone in this. There are also other people who fear that they're not soft or feminine enough, and those struggles equally impact their sense of self-worth, attitudes, and experiences in sex. Personally, I think a lot of it's bullshit. And if that's the case, then what else is there? Sex and dating can be scary, but you don't have to be totally screwed as long as you've got the right tools. Greetings, kings, queens, and libertines. I'm certified sex coach Kincaid McMinn, and this is Royally Screwed, the show where I talk with my friends about masturbation, mating, marriage, and everything in between. Each episode, my guest and I share personal stories about our own dating lives and how that relates to culture at large. Today, I'm joined by sexologist, sociologist, and proud hoe, Sarah Martin. Sarah is a dating coach who helps horny people get laid ethically. She created the Dignified Hedonist Framework, a proven system for supercharging your dating and relationship success. Sarah has worked with hundreds of clients all over the world through workshops, courses, and results-focused one-on-one coaching. Sarah operates her private practice out of Vilnius, Lithuania, where she serves clients online worldwide. You can find her at her website, dignifiedhedonist.com. In addition to all this, Sarah wrote her master's thesis about pickup artists. She knows her stuff. What's more, she's not too dissimilar from your humble host. We are both nerdy late December Capricorn sex coaches who both happen to be fans of Rammstein, the sexiest ensemble to ever come out of Germany. She is a mentor on a professional level, a kindred spirit on a personal level, and I'm so excited to have her here today. Sarah, welcome to the show. Well, Kincaid, that's quite an intro. I'm sitting here blushing. I gotta, gotta cool it down a little bit, my friend. Take off what a scarf. delight. It's great to be here. <laughs> it's it's great to have you here. It is an honor and just a personal pleasure to be talking with you. We have conversations, you know, off the record, off the books all the time that are some of the most enjoyable to have someone who's on such a similar wavelength as me in a lot of different things. So I, I'm, I hope that people can be a nice fly on the wall here to this conversation have a good time, hopefully learn something. Indeed. You know, it's and it's wild, Kincaid. When I first, you know, when we first sat down and did one of these, instead of just social media stalking each other, <laughs> yeah. some of the details were uncanny because you used to be a competitive swimmer and I did too. And I remember thinking, this this just this just too similar. This is too weird. And now here we are I on your podcast. About the competitive swimmer bit. Right. Uh, there and there are other things too. We both lean into this kind of this imagery of regality in our messaging. You have dignified hedonist. I have royally screwed and royal love coaching. So we both lean into similar imageries separately before we ever really started collaborating personally or professionally. 
we both had these similar thought trains and it's just such a wonderful meeting of minds and the i'm i'm just i'm bristling with excitement for the bullshittery that's about to go down well we're talking a little bit about gender today kincaid and mm -hmm. i always wondered what i might be like had i been born a man i met you and now i know <laughs> i that makes me flustered that's that's a wonderful thing for me to hear because yeah so we are talking about gender and it's such an interesting topic of specifically like you know people who try to enforce gender rigidity to things and how that affects us and i've i've often kind of like contemplated like oh what would it be like to have this the you know to have a different gendered experience than i do not in a way that i question my gender necessarily but in just a way that i express curiosity to try to gain gain better understanding and more it's such an interesting thing but yes then then we met i'm so glad to hear that i can kind of like scratch that itch for you i don't know if that's quite the right phrasing for it but <laughs> answer I mean, that hey, question run with it yeah you know and it's it's i mean i suppose here my friend my host why don't you take it away because i can feel a ramble coming on but i'd like to try to you know like keep this conversation targeted okay. so what are we talking about? Where are we going to go with this? We are talking about gender rigidity, specifically as how it relates to the sex and dating world. Yeah. We're going to share some personal stories. We're going to, you know, be a little educational. But first and foremost, I always like this to be a casual conversation between friends. This one's clearly going to be one of those. So first off, what you drinking? I've got sparkling water with some lemon in it that's my that's my classy hoe drink for today how about you that's fantastic it is it's much later in the afternoon there in lithuania than it is here in texas uh i've got a spiked coffee normally i drink coffee oh, wow. in the morning but because this is a special occasion i spiked it with some black coffee crack and rum basically and not too bad actually they like sweetened it up they like you taste it, you definitely get a little coffee flavor, but they also sweetened the rum itself. So I was like, oh, I don't need to add any sugar or anything to my coffee. This is great. Isn't it like 10 a.m.? <laughs> yes, that's why I'm drinking coffee. <laughs> okay, you wild thing. I'm ready for this to get spicy. All right. So first off, what, what has your experience been? Like, I talked earlier about how... I felt growing up, what my experience was that I didn't feel like I was quite enough because I felt like I had to represent a particular thing or be a particular way. What has your experience been trying to conform to or rebel against the gender rigidity as we experience it in dating? Yeah, well, I did a lot of my growing up in the 90s and early 2000s. And this was a period of time where the harmful lady stereotype, because there's always one and it's just changing from mm. time to time. And back then it was the size zero or the size double zero model was the look that was in vogue. Right. And that is not my body shape. That is not my genetic heritage. And growing up inside of a pretty toxic culture when it comes to what's an acceptable body, like all of the women in my family always date, uh, dating, always dieting when I was growing up. So like that was 
at family gatherings, right, that was a topic of regular conversation, which, you know, cabbage soup or lemon this or Atkins that people were doing at any given time. So I grew up and had quite a formative experience receiving a lot of bullying from people at school. And it was centered mainly on my weight and specifically how no one would ever love me or marry me because I was fat, right? That was the message that I got over and over and over again. The other thing about the 90s, early 2000s, right, is that this is when purity culture was really like, you know, it was in the zeitgeist. It was at its peak. This like horror, all these horrible things with like purity rings and purity balls. And I know this garbage still exists. And at the same time, this was also the time of the uh, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, you know, that I'm not familiar with that. Book. Would you mind explaining that just a little bit? Uh, isn't his name Joshua Harris? But anyway, this take on good Christians don't date, basically. Like, you don't even hold hands until you get engaged. You don't kiss until you get married. Oh, like, like, like dating as experimentation is a flawed concept. I only, you know, will show affection with intent to marry, essentially. Kind of. It's a big old rabbit hole. And I am so not the most qualified person to talk about this because I am a heathen, right? I'm an unbaptized. I think that's cool. And anyway, like, so that wasn't a direct influence from my family, for example. And I know people who grew up within these communities had a much bigger struggle than I did, but it was still in the air I breathed. It was still within the community at school. And I share all of that because it was held up that, you know, one thing that makes you, and I'm doing air quotes now, you know, a high value woman is that you don't have sex. And my problem was <laughs> I have always been this extremely horny human being. And so it was a very confusing combination of factors and influences to have. So on the one hand, being told, you know, no one will ever love you. No one will ever have sex with you. And then being like, oh my God, devastated. Because of course you listen to your peers when you're 12, you know? And then on the other hand, to hear this, well, you know, it's very virtuous to not have sex. And then on the other hand, puberty arrives and I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> and in and, and amongst that as well, like kind of the discovery of my queerness, I identify as bisexual. And in the year 2000, Vermont, where I grew up, was considering whether or not they were going to make civil unions legal. So the precursor to gay marriage, right? And I remember being shocked and horrified to have friends in school. I was in what my freshman or sophomore year of high school when this was happening. And the vile homophobia that started coming out of people who I thought were just like normal, like friendly kids who were suddenly, you know, it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And I'm like, oh dear. Or uh, real Vermonters make fudge, they don't pack it. Whoa. Like these are still burned into my brain and you know having that happening at the same time when I figured out like I kind of like the people with boobies as well yeah. <laughs> was it was very 
It was very disorienting. Sure. Kincaid. My first kiss was with a girl, actually. That's fucking awesome. There you go. That's honestly like my... the coolest fucking thing I think I've ever heard. Oh, it was so it was so lame, too. She's like, we've got to practice for when we get a chance to kiss Trevor. Oh, this was one of those. Oh, this is amazing. Yeah. You always see it on TV. I've never met someone who had that actual experience. That's amazing. Life, my friend, I have lived some of it. But in any case, so to answer your question, mm-hmm. that's some of the backdrop that I come with. And things only started to feel hopeful when I got very far away from the small town I grew up in mm-hmm. by becoming a high school foreign exchange student and Wait, suddenly realizing, huh? I said they have those for high school. Yeah. Did you not ever have foreign exchange students we... in your high school? No, Did no, you not okay, watch so like American Pie where the hot foreign exchange student comes from some other place and everybody's all like, oh, my goodness. No. OK, you know? so you're correct. I like we had foreign exchange students at my high school, but I never knew of anyone who participated from my high school to go somewhere else. I thought that was just mm. like other countries sent their kids to America for some reason. But we didn't have those same cool ass programs here in the uh, U.S. Well, we do. And I participated in one. And it was the most liberating experience of my entire Mm. life. And it's still, you know, that's that's a long time ago now. And in some ways, it still feels like yesterday, how a lot of transformative experiences often do. But I learned that I wasn't destined to have a reputation follow me everywhere, the same one from primary school, right? And that people in other parts of the world have very different definitions and interpretations of things. I learned that, wow, American culture wasn't the only culture. And I felt tremendous relief when I learned this to be the case. I'm grinning ear to ear right now at your last statement there that at at the specifically at the relief that you felt. That's something that when I started really reading about other cultures, other religions, different things like that around my mid to late teens, and especially into my early 20s, as I started trying to read more and learn more, I was like, oh, there's so much more to this world than the state of Texas where I grew up in. Or I even went to a, a liberal arts college in Arkansas, which was pretty progressive, I suppose, for a small town Arkansas. But even then, I I remember thinking about, you know, going to my first like gay straight alliance meeting in college as someone who still identified as straight at the time and still being kind of confused even at the you know even in my early college days I was still like I don't fully get everything like I don't fully understand like why would you want to like why people break out of this the 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 structure that is set at the time I was still very very stuck in the contemporary American like heterosexual structure of things Mm. and and hey like not to not heterosexuals like that's no yes that is (laughs) wonderful I'm talking about like the paradigm where that is the norm and anything outside of that is frowned upon or shunned yeah I know you mean that I think I'm just preempting I've spent so long swimming in these waters I'm just I'm just you know shouting out to my men's rights activists before they can make their comments basically 100%. I do that too with with some of my other guests so I appreciate it you're amazing thank you 
I do have a fun, like, this is a fun story having to do with this freshman year of college. And it was the first time that I participated in a drag show. And I think it's still probably the only time, but I remember, I remember this very vividly. My college had a, had a drag contest called the Miss Halloweeny pageant. Mm-hmm. And I remember, so this is where we begin to start to break outside of the box, at least for me. Like I really start to kind of break outside of this box a little bit where a couple of my friends and I decided to participate in the pageant. A lot of us were freshmen. I think a couple of us were sophomores or things like that. But we went to a local thrift store and there was this bright red sequined like mermaid style dress mm-hmm. that the moment that I tried it on, it was that moment you have to kind of like suck in your stomach just a little bit to, to get the zipper up. But when I tried it on and looked myself in the mirror, I was like, oh, this is that feeling. This is like, there is a, I suppose there's a feeling that I think a lot of girls had experienced up to that point in high school or things like that. But I don't think a lot of guys get to experience that where you try something on and you're just like, oh, that's how, like that fits in a way that is so unique and it feels like it fits perfectly to your body and it was designed for you. And I had that experience. I was like, this is fucking cool. I could do this some more. And I got second place, I think, in the pageant that year. And nice. I should have won. Nice. I should have fucking won. I lost because because uh, of a fluke. I lost by one point. It was bullshit. Oh, you're hanging on to. I, you're still hanging on to that <laughs> resentment, Kincaid. I have made peace with it. I, I Have you? Shh. <laughs> but that was, that was such a fun experience. And then, yeah, I was, uh, all throughout high school, I was, you know, made fun of. I was called gay a lot of times because of a lot of my extracurriculars. Mostly, I was also very effeminate. I suppose I was small. I wasn't as big as my as my classmates, and that made me feel like nobody's gonna like me for who I am. And I started to make some peace with it. And then around like 2016, 2017, I started to get into certain like personal development circles that. I thought were going to help me and ended up reinforcing a lot of gendered stereotypes and actually Mm. ended up hurting me in a lot of major ways. I talked about this very briefly with another former guest, Angela Lacascio, where I I started listening to, you know, reading books like David Data. Yeah. Way of the Superior Man. The the Way of the Superior Man. Yeah. The Way of the Superior Man. I don't. For anyone who's wondering, I don't recommend that. You can, you know, I'll, I'll post a, I'll develop a reading list and post it to my website at some point, and this book will not be on there. You want to know a fun fact? What's that? When I was selecting the corpus for my study, so we mentioned that my master's degree was about pickup artists. Mm-hmm. Specifically, it was about economic metaphor and pickup artist handbooks. So I had to pick which handbooks. I was going to include. And I had considered adding the way of the superior man, because even though it's not a classic PUA manual, Mm -hmm. I consider it part of the genre, honestly. And ultimately, I was like, it's maybe a boat too far. You know, I'd really be pushing it out a little bit to include that. But I, I see massive parallels between pickup artists and tantra folk. And I think the the thing that they have in common is this gender essentialism, this gender rigidity. hundred percent. I, in preparation for you being on the show, I, I didn't get to finish it, but I did, I did like 
read through your your master's thesis again. Thesis or dissertation? I forget. It's a thesis. It's a thesis. I did read through your master's thesis again because I wanted to to get a refresher on everything before before having you on. And I see why you would want to add David Data. I see why you would want to add that book there, but I also see and understand and agree with your final decision to not include that in your corpus. Corpus? Corpus? Corpus. Corpus. Body. Uh, in your corpus. Clearly, the spiked coffee is already getting to me. Nice. It's like a low-grade speedball. It's wonderful. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that was the thing, is, is a lot of those books are dependent upon stereotypes they're dependent upon ways that we've already kind of established thinking about things and in particular as you as your thesis broke it down is based on economics so for those of you who are listening a basic rundown is that men have a a set or appreciating value as they continue their career over time and develop greater and greater assets and value big air quotes here and women in the dating pool have a depreciating value based on their physical appearance and their sexual appeal. And all the, the economic metaphors are essentially men trade their time and attention and material resources for a woman's sexual ability, appeal, capability, things like that, sexual attention. And when we break things into that kind of thinking, it sex becomes very transactional. And at the end of your abstract, you mention this fundamental shift between how a lot of the major dating pool and the, these kind of gendered stereotypes think about sex versus how sexologists like you and I think about sex is that a lot of people think about sex as a, and especially these economic metaphors, think about sex as a means to an end. They use sex in a transactional way for attention or resources or something like that. Or validation for a validation. lot of the time. I think a lot of people, what they're trying to do is punch that card that says that they're okay and mm. using sex as a means to that end. And that would be you know, an, an instrumental approach to sex, I think is what I call it in my fancy pants paper, which is where <laughs> sex is a tool to help you achieve something else. It's a means to another end. Whereas there's also the experiential approach to sex, mm. which is sex as an end in itself. That's so not as a way to make something else happen, but as an experience worthy in its own right. And if what you actually want to experience is pleasure, it's the experiential approach that gets you there. This instrumental approach, I think a lot of folks take it because that's what's modeled by society at large. That's how you're supposed to do it. That's how you should do relationships and sex. And then they wonder why they're so unhappy. <laughs> and it's because you are trying to use it for something else. And it's, it's, it's simple, but it's, you know, that doesn't make it easy. I would say, too, that one thing I do in that paper, which I totally understand not reading. The, it's a big old paper and it's full of like sociology stuff. It was um, it was a bit of a slog to read through, but I was still enjoying it. I still found it enjoyable, honestly. But I'm also a I, nerd I, in this sphere. I spend like a whole chapter explaining why, even though for many people, it feels like an experience of economy, right? An experience of 
transaction and scarcity, that it's not actually economic in nature, that you can't apply models, economic models to dating and sex and have any real predictive power, like they fall apart. And that's because what's happening here is different. And I talk about some other approaches that I think are actually a lot better if you're trying to understand what's going on sexually within society, right? For anybody who wants to get a bit more involved in this, like you can actually download my thesis. It's on my website. It's on the about page. So if you too would like to read about like the sexual fields approach to understanding sexual sociality, I have got a bibliography that you are going to want to see. Where do people find this? (laughs) Uh, Dignifiedhedonist.com. I'm assuming forward slash about, but if you just go to the website, it's, it's in the top menu bar right there. And on the about page, scroll down, click the big button. You don't even have to opt in with an email address. You can just read it. And, you know, like any of your friends who've written master's thesis, if you ever ask if you can read it, you'll just make their day, right? You spend hours and hours and a lot of tears on these things just for them to remain mostly unread. We're kind of going off piste here a little bit. We were talking about how like tantra practitioners a lot of times use very flowery language use this very spiritual flowery language to essentially reinforce gender stereotypes Ah, well you've now reminded me of the thing that i wanted to say which is when you were talking about my research or about pickup artists you were talking about it playing on stereotypes and i Mm. actually think it's something a bit more sinister than that please it's not just about stereotypes it's about a naturalistic view of gender, that it's determined by nature, that women are essentially one way and that men are essentially another way. And maybe we don't like it, but, you know, nature is cruel. And that has always stunk of bullshit to me. And I don't know why more people, especially those evolutionary psychologists, don't smell it. Because if it were just nature and this were determined as an essential part, right, of our organic being, then why would we need so many rules and stricture and so much social policing of gender? It's, it's, it's kind of, you know, do we have to like socially police each other about like, I don't know, what's something that's essential to being human peeing? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I guess we have some social mores about that, you know, like don't just, you know, do it on the on the street where other people are going to walk, maybe not a great example, but more like, right. We breathe air, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's just a thing that we do. That is something that is biologically determined, right? The idea that that one is born and there's this biological destiny that is pointless to fight against. It's such bullshit. Like it's, and that so many people believe this kind of I, I start to wonder, like, where did this Kool-Aid come from? And why do we look at each other this way? Because I think it's a, a big part of what keeps people separate from each other. So, you know, people who identify as men and women or are given that identity by others or people who have gender expression that's not on like a really simple binary And you see the amount of vitriol and hatred that that stirs up because it's poking at something that people are holding as this fundamental truth. And I think all of the folks who are going and saying, hey, I'm non-binary. Hey, I'm two spirit. Hey, I'm trans are, are basically going and saying like it's lies. 
it's lies and people don't like the dissonance that comes from something refuting. Because that's the other thing, too. Like if this was all so determined by nature, inescapably, then why would we see so much heterogeneity here? Like, why would there be so much variety and diversity? And that's where it's kind of like you Evo people should know <laughs> that diversity is part of the evolutionary strength of our species, mm-hmm. that like that's part of how we survive. That's part of what our selection pressure has been for. Right. But again, like not my field of expertise. So I won't talk more about that apart from to say, like when you get this gender determinism, when you notice it, like turn up the critical thinking and really turn on the bullshit radar because you're about to to walk right into it. Right. Yeah. Oh, there's so many, there's so many wonderful tidbits in everything that you've just said. You talked about this kind of these, these fences that are laid around like these, these razor wire fences and all these, all these structures that we create to try to essentially enforce something that should be natural and easy. According to these people. According to these people. Yes. And it reminds me so much of uh, one of the opening passages of one of my favorite books, Sex at Dawn. Now, Sex at Dawn is not a perfect book, but it presents a very unique perspective on anthropological and evolutionary evidence that could support that monogamy may not be the natural, air quotes here, natural method of human mating, essentially. They, They talk specifically in reference here about female sexuality and how there's so many rules around women's sexuality, but but also at the same time, women are supposedly the less the the less sexual of the genders or or sexes. How you know they you know women don't have orgasms, women don't have uh you know have sexual desire or aren't as sexual as their husbands. But at the same time, there's so many rules around how women present themselves sexually or not, or you know operate in the workplace or or what their sexual motives are there's so many rules around it. it's like why do you need all this high-powered electrified fencing for what supposedly is a non-threat and i think similar logic applies here with regards to gender why do we need all of these defenses for something that's supposedly natural right and what's more who benefits and what are the the downstream effects? These are very useful questions to ask when you're wading in these waters. Because as I mentioned before, and maybe it's worth taking a step back, the reason I decided to do this research was because I was operating a busy clinical practice and 100% of my clients at that time were talking to me about pickup artists were talking to me about how they read the game and it changed their life or about how they went to a boot camp weekend and they learned a lot, but something was missing. And I was like, I got to know more about this. And so started doing a little bit of reading and was immediately struck by the amount of economic language in books that are ostensibly about sex and dating and seduction. They're not very sexy books to read. I'll just point that out. And if you ever read a pickup artist writing about sex, like it's some of the unsexiest writing ever. And and again, like a sidebar to my sidebar here, but I just got to throw it in, right? If classic PUA is something you want to engage in, you want to find the work of people 
who are doing it, who are in the quote unquote game because they love sex and not for any other reason. So this makes me think of Richard La Rowena, a.k.a. The Gambler. This guy, we are friends on Twitter. <laughs> it's a whole thing. And he now produces the Super Seducer video games, which I actually kind of like them. There's an earnestness there. He did get raked over the coals for like being a bit of a shithead in the first game, but he actually took the feedback on board and diversified and got more women's voices involved in number two and number three. That's but a I mean, positive like, and I, sign. And it was amazing because these started coming out while I was like working on my master's. They so were both in 2018, right? Uh, the first two were, and number three came out this year, I think. Oh. Anyway, but like part of what made him so different, because his book, The Natural, I also included in my study. What sets him apart from the other three is that like, this is just a guy who really likes sex and really appreciably likes women. And therefore, even though his book is like much more traditional PUA, it's also not vile and it's not hateful and it doesn't slip too far into this gender rigidity or gender essentialism. And it's driving towards a different end, which is pleasure. And that orientation makes so much difference. I totally forget where I started to wind up here. So I think you asked a question. I don't know if I answered it or not. I was just making a statement mostly about your previous statement. I was making the reference to sex at dawn, essentially. Oh, right. And talking about electrifying fences and talking about how if this is all natural and easy, then why is there this whole edifice around it? That's correct. And so here's the thing, like that edifice, that game. Yeah, this is where I was going. It's basically rigged, right? Nobody really wins if they choose to play. And yeah, and that's why I started talking about my clients in that because of the struggles that I was seeing. And so it Basically, where I wanted to wind up, thank you for pulling me back, mm-hmm. is why play a game that you're just going to lose? Why take an approach that's not going to lead to satisfaction? Why not do something entirely differently? Instead, why not the pursuit of pleasure from a place of worthiness, aka dignified hedonism? Because Dignity refers to the worthiness that's an inherent in each and every one of us, which is already a revolutionary perspective to take, right? Like society also spends plenty of time telling us that we're not worthy or that anything we have has to be deserved and and earned as a reward. And, and gender is used in this way too, right? Be feminine enough so that a man will love you. Be masculine enough so that a woman will have sex with you. Right. It's that same kind of thing, whereas we're actually all worthy. And it's 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 as simple as that. You're alive. You're here. You're worthy. And it's often the element that's missing from hedonism. Right. Like you use that word hedonism. It's funny how divisive it is. Mm-hmm. The amount of people who are like, oh, hedonism it's evil. And it's like, well, if your pursuit of pleasure disregards both your own dignity and the dignity of others, then, yeah, I can get on board and say that that's potentially evil. When you add dignity in though, and where you make sure that you're caring for both yourself and your potential partners, that changes everything, right? Because the other important thing about these gender essentialists, like a lot of people are like, oh, men, 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 like men just like 
win from all of this. No, they fucking don't. Like they suffer men too. wind up having like an awful time inside of this paradigm too for that economic metaphor structure that I write about to work. The men are commodities just as much as the women are, right? The men wind up objectified and commoditized as much as women do in those books because you can't really dehumanize one group of people without also dehumanizing yourself a bit. And or like, yeah, exactly. In the pursuit of the commodification of another, you end up dehumanizing yourself, essentially. Hunter ends up becoming this monster in the end. You know, it, it's it's terrible. I couldn't agree more. There was another thought that I was going to to bounce off of that, and it has escaped me. <laughs> That's what happens when you drink coffee rum at 10 a.m. I don't need that kind of reality check right now. But I, I absolutely love... Oh, no. Actually, I remember what I was going to say now. Similar to your emphasis on dignity, I, I place a great emphasis. Like, the, hedonism is perfectly fine. In, in, in my language, I would say, like, with a set of ethics. And I define ethics as, like, best practices for how to treat others in a scenario to allow for everyone to walk away with maximum pleasure or joy and minimum harm. So what's the most ethical way for you to be a hedonist or a dignified hedonist or pursue sex and pleasure for sex and pleasure's sake, it's to go forward with that in mind and in th- with that in a sense of open communication with whoever it is that you're talking to. If you're not looking for a relationship, don't go forward and say that you're looking for a relationship to try to get someone in bed and then leave. You know, Don't put on some sort of fake front. Be honest and open with the people that you talk to and find other people that are in alignment with that. That's the ethical way or the dignified way to go about this, to pursue pleasure as its own end and not this gamified, economized way of sex as a transactional nature. That's, that's we present ourselves in the best light to try to get something out of someone else that may or may not be an open part of the negotiation. Yes. And mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. And there's, there's some more I would add to that because while it's simple and that sounds so basic and most people, if you ask them, they'll say, yeah, I value honesty. And part of the problem that a lot of folks have part of why this is challenging, right? Part of why we don't all just do this. Is it's twofold. Number one, For that to work, you have to actually know what you want and like what you want, not what you think other people want you to want, not what you've been told to want, not what you think is acceptable to want, not what you think you have to want if you're going to wind up with a partner, but what you actually want. And then step two is you have to be vulnerable about that. And we all hate being vulnerable. We love to see it in other people. We hate to do it ourselves. And that's You know, like courage is an inherent part of this process. And and I I kind of like reframing courage as a skill because that's what it actually is. It's something in practice, right? Somebody isn't courageous as an attribute, you know, like in the way that somebody is, I don't know. Naturally taller than someone else. Yeah, like 
courage isn't like height, right? And courage is an incredibly active process. It's making the choice to be brave over and over and over and share what it is that you want without any attachment to the outcome. That's it. That's maybe the third piece is, mm-hmm. you know, I, I describe this to some people as like holding our relationships gently, right? Like you can imagine it almost like a bird in the palm of your hand and you just kind of accept it could fly away at any moment. Like that's the thing that can be scary. Right. But if you grab it so tight, right. You can kill it. Like that's where a lot of relationships crumble because of this like desperate clinging that Mm. a lot of people do because I mean, deep down, right. We're all just like humans who want to be, loved and want to have a good time while we're here. Absolutely. It, it is that people have their essence, their sense of value, their sense of self-worth tied up in their connection with another person. And right. And that is a shitty position to be in. If you're the other person, it's, it's like, an can un- we just acknowledge that it's an unfair position to put the other person in it. If you hold someone up on a pedestal or if you try to clutch them so tight because your self-worth is wrapped up in them, that puts immense pressure on them. It is incredibly unfair to them. They cannot live their own life because they they can feel that. And it, it, it completely saps so much of the joy and spontaneity and, and, and fun out of a situation, Other, otherwise enjoyable situation. Yeah. So, you know, I I think we're very much on the same wavelength here and how these two threads link up together is that there's a lot that folks are told that they should or must do on the basis of gender in order to be an appealing partner and doing things because you think that's what you have to do because of your gender in order to be an appealing partner, kind of dishonest, especially if it's not what you actually want. hundred percent. There, there is like shit. I wish we, I wish we had more time because we don't have enough time to, to dig into this a hundred percent. A while ago, the sex coach, you book club read the body is not an apology by Sonia Renee Taylor. Mm-hmm. And it brought up such wonderful conversations within the group about our motivations for doing things. And specifically, do we do the things that we do because we love ourselves or because we want approval from others? You know, like like for me working out, I feel better about myself because I work out. Now, if we wanted to get like really psychoanalytic or really dig into it or, or even cynical, perhaps to an extent, there could be an argument that's like, oh, you work out because you were told that you were too skinny and now you feel a sense of self-worth because you work out now and you're told that's more acceptable. There may be an argument for that, but I also just feel good when I work out. The endorphins flow and I also just feel good doing it. And I, I struggle with that, with that kind of gender essentialism as as a as a cisgendered man who's told that you need to work out and be muscular to be valuable, I really do think about, okay, why do I do it? I think at the end of the day, I do it because I feel good doing it and everything else comes secondary to that. Well, given that you, it sounds like you've had the experience on both sides of the coin and maybe this is a good 
parable to end on. Mm. Is it easier to do it because it feels good or is it easier to do it when you're trying to to bulk because you think that's what you need to do? Oh, I can 100% tell you the, the answer to that. That's a great probing question. Uh, when I was a freshman in college, my main motivation to work out was to try to meet girls in college. And that was met with mixed results isn't is already too generous of a word. It didn't it didn't pan out well at all. I work out now because my day feels incomplete without it. I work out now because it helps me feel good about myself. And I, with that, I feel much more grounded in who I am and I don't need anybody else's approval. It's something that I do for myself as part of my daily self-care. And that helps me be a better person and helps me live a more satisfied life and a more, you know, have a more satisfied relationship as an extension of that but not with that as the end goal anymore. There's a massive difference. I no longer work out specifically to meet women. Whereas when I was a freshman in college and not dating successfully at all, that was the primary motivation. All right. And so like for anybody listening to this, these things are allowed to be easy. And generally the more you orient toward experiential motivation, toward doing something for the sake of doing the thing itself or doing a thing for the simple pleasure of doing the thing, the easier all of this gets, right? Like, don't forget, we've got, you know, in addition to all these more general economic metaphors, people are always talking about how, how like sex and relationships are hard work. And I'm here to say, like, fuck that. (laughs) It doesn't have to be. And, and this is the alternative pathway, right? And, and also like, you can also like be gentle and forgive yourself when you do things for instrumental reasons, mm. working out because you want to get the girls like forgive yourself. Cause that's what you've been told your whole life that you should do. And, and that's how you make this work. There's nothing wrong with wanting to know how to do something, how to improve your skills. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to know how to go on more dates or how to have more sex or how to have more pleasurable sex. Like, I I think that's important to add here since I've spent plenty of time ragging on pickup artists today, that those fundamental desires that drive people to seeking this knowledge, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be an abject hoe as I very proudly myself am. What makes all the difference in the world is this underlying motivation, right? Are you treating yourself as worthy? Are you treating your partners as worthy? And are you doing it for pleasure? The answer to those things are yes, then, you know, you're moving in the right direction. I think that is a wonderful place to wrap up. I am always in awe of every conversation that we have. This is amazing. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Please take a second. And this is your time to shamelessly plug anything that you're doing, anything that you're working on that's releasing soon, especially because this will be going out relatively in the new year. Go ahead. Give it your all here. So if you if you've liked picking up what I've been putting down, come on over to dignifiedhedonist.com. You can sign up for my daily emails. I send out a little story or tip or a bit of inspiration every Monday through Friday. And for the lovely people listening to this podcast, right, I have an ebook called The Hedonist Guide to Flirting Archetypes, which is not going to be available 
at no charge for very much longer. But if you head over to dignifiedhedonist.com forward slash flirting dash guide, you can grab a copy completely for free. And then if you do that, you'll get to hear about the flirting toolkit that it's going to be included in in the future. Maybe get your hands on that. I've also got a brand new course available called Keep Casual, which is about how to use online dating for hookups and friends with benefits. And you can find that by heading to my website and clicking on courses and resources. Sarah, thank you so much. Everyone, go check her out. She is amazing and she is a a mentor and personal inspiration of mine. She's phenomenal. If you would like to see more of me, you can check me out at at Kincaid McMinn on Twitter and at Royal Love Coach on Facebook and Twitter. I'm also most active on TikTok at Kincaid McMinn, so check that out as well. If you would like private coaching from me, check out my website, www.royallovecoach.com. I recently added a services section where I offer one, four, and 12 session coaching bundles, as well as a 50 minute informational session for a simple topic. If you don't want private coaching, but you want to support this show in other ways, you can give a positive review so more people can find it. You can go to patreon.com forward slash royally screwed for perks like exclusive recordings and voting on future topics. Or you can make a donation to paypal.me forward slash royally screwed. Everyone, thank you so much for listening, for being a fly on this wall. I hope you gained something of value. Sarah, oh my goodness, biggest kisses in the world. Thank you so much for being here. And until I see you all next time with another guest, love like royalty. 